Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Care has the power to bring kindness where it's needed. It brings out the best in every one of us. It doesn't just see people. It takes time to understand them. It puts the needs of others ahead of its own. And when you start with care, you end up with a very different kind of bank. Truist. Truist Bank, member FDIC. The following episode of Killer Genes contains graphic and sensitive information and material. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Killer Jeans Stripped Down, where we talk about everything true crime and then some. You'll hear about the cases that are close to us and go behind the scenes of true crime reporting. We'll also talk about case updates and breaking news, as well as speak with some of our friends and colleagues in the world of true crime. Now, we're going to be sharing things we've never been able to talk about because certainly inappropriate to post online, but this is the platform that we can finally share it, what really happens when gathering true crime stories. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on another episode of Killer Jeans Stripped Down. I am super excited for our guest today. It's one of my very, very dear friends, Dayton, Ohio Police Department, cold case detective, now retired, Miss Patty Tackett. Patty, welcome. Thanks, Kelly. How are you today? Great. You know, the one question I always want to ask everybody in law enforcement is, how did you start your career in law enforcement? What was your inspiration in your driving force to take that career path? Originally, when I was in school, I took a law class and I really liked it. And I thought, I want to do something to have to do with this. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to be a lawyer. And, you know, paralegals were kind of popular back then. And I thought, no, that's too much the field of lawyer. And so I had a neighbor that was a police officer. And I just always looked up to him and what he did. And um, I decided that's what I wanted to do. And I went to school for it and then um, had a temporary job in between waiting for the police academy and started the police academy. And 31 years later, here I am. Your niche, you specialized in the cold case unit. Did you have to promote up to that or was that always, you know, your targeted goal and why? You know, when I came on the police department, which was in um, 1990, that it it wasn't even a word. Cold case didn't even exist. And um, I actually worked the street for six years and then went into the detective section and worked general assignment. And I then I kind of specialized in burglaries. And actually, somebody had called in and how I got fielded the call, I have no idea, but um, had called in and wanted to give some information on a motorcycle accident that she was telling me was not an accident, that it was intentional and went on and on and on through this whole thing. And I looked into a whole bunch of stuff after I hung up with her, which caused me to call the coroner's office and do this whole investigation on this information she was giving me. And I went. I really enjoyed that. That was like, that really was fitting pieces to the puzzle and um, ended up being a different jurisdiction's case. By the time I got done um, doing everything, we were, we were there on the scene, but we turned it over to an, our adjoining ju- jurisdiction. But that kind of got me, what kind of got me interested in it. 
and we were having a um, a big switch around up in our detective section, and they gave us a piece of paper and told us, give us your top spots that you would like to go to up here in the detective section. And I put homicide slash cold case. And we had had a police officer that was killed off duty um, a few years prior to that. And they were thinking about putting together a team of people to work that case. And um, gosh, like a couple of weeks after we did that, they called me in the homicide and said, is that what you want to do? And I said, yeah. And they said, okay, we're going to develop a unit and um, you're in. And I'm like, oh, who would have thought it was going to be that easy? And it didn't even exist. It didn't, it did not exist. And that's, so then everybody's like, how'd you get that? I says, uh, I just wrote it down on a piece of paper. It's so, amazing what you could do when you ask for things. You know what? It is because I, I, the only reason why it even, I, I don't even know why I even thought to put that down because it truly did not exist. But homicide did. And I thought, well, this is kind of a buzzword. I really enjoyed doing what I did, doing that research that I did, that I enjoyed it enough to say, you know what, I'm going to ask. And I know that they've got this talking about this unit and stuff. So why not? And it was becoming the buzzword and stuff. So I thought all they can do is put me on homicide or say no. And I continue to do burglaries. And interesting, the pressure that was applied to you early on as far as you make it into this unit. And then your first case is the death of a fellow officer. That that actually and that was they were already start when by the time I went over there and got into homicide and started working homicide and felonious assaults and stuff. They had a unit that had started and from the state, there was some detectives from the state that were working it from our attorney general's office. So they had a team of people. And then when I came over there, I got. I got thrown in with a team of people that had already started um, that case. Yes. And then that was actually the first case. And then they got some grants with our um, coroner's office and our crime lab. And they got it paid for the state of my fees. And then they brought in some retired officers. So um, we had two active officers that were assigned um, in the unit. And then the rest were retired or that came from the state. So it was it was quite I mean, it was quite a team of people. Unfortunately, by the time I left it, which was just in August, um, it was just me. So it went from a huge team of people down to four and then down to three and then down to two and then just me. Patty, how have you seen the evolution of cold case investigation happen? You know, obviously with all the advancements in in DNA these days and using uh, DNA profiles and genealogical um, trees and and data and, you know, with the, uh, you know, internet and everything like that. How have you been able to ride that wave? Also on that note, which is a great question that you also just said it was just you. So does it come down to funding? You know, these units are so important and you have all these advances, like Kelly just said, but it, does it also come down to funding? It does. Um, so I was actually in the cold case unit for 16 years um, from the time I got assigned to it until I just retired. And um, so, so many changes had occurred over that 16 years. Um, obviously, personnel is a, is a biggie um, that we were bringing so many people in and then some people would leave. But what was happening is the state was funding these programs throughout the state of Ohio and other places because cold case was the buzzword. 
that was where everybody was getting grants and stuff for them because the DNA had just come out. So all the crime labs were actually getting the grants. So the grants didn't necessarily go to the police department. They went to the local crime labs who was putting money into getting the taken old evidence and putting the DNA in. Well, it wasn't doing them any good because they would get DNA results and then they, they would do sexual assaults. They would do homicides and that they would get these results. They would go over to the or, or original detective that may not even be there anymore. They were not getting a lot of good responses because you just you had officers that weren't working it. So then that's when they added to the grant. We need law enforcement involved in this grant. Hence us coming in. We were working the police uh, department grant uh, with the police officer. And then we kind of just pulled it all together. And we had people that came actually from the state, the attorney general's office and BCI that was in there with us and other agencies that kind of came in there and helped us at the very beginning. But then they backed out. Um, The sheriff's department had backed out because of funding. And then as the heroin epidemic and some of the other things came up, the funding for cold case was was put uh, put in the back seat. So each year that the funding was coming up, we keep sawing more and more funds taken out. So then the state stopped funding it, and then the local department started funding it, and then um, it just kept getting less and less. And the police department kept me in it, um, so they kept me active in it. And then there was a retired person that the crime lab kept active in it up until mm, three years ago. And... um, and that person that was with me went over and worked for the crime lab because the director of the crime lab left and they just, they lost all their funding on it. So yeah, I would say funding has to do with it. Now, are they trying to amp it up because of some new technology and new stuff that's coming in? Yes. Um, so it's kind of revamping itself um, for a number, for a few different reasons. So um, they're looking for funding now to revamp it up. but. It's so difficult right now because of the numbers dropping and the police departments of the number of officers that they have. They're they're struggling with getting officers to even come to the job and and be in our academy and even take the test. So it's going to be more and more struggle because they don't have the personnel to handle the active cases, let alone, you know, pulling from the old cases. So they'll have the detectives that are working active cases who will work some of the cold cases when they're not busy on active cases. And is it right that there aren't a lot of women in this uh, particular field? And why do you think that is? Um, I would say in general, the if you pull from, well, there, there's two things. A lot of agencies will pull from their homicide unit or their sexual assault squad. Now, sexual squad, assault squad seems to have more females Homicide squads do not have as many females um, in them. And then if you bring in retirees, you're pulling from, there wasn't a lot of women. Like when I came on in 1990, there were times that I was in in a very large city of 600 officers at the time. There were times I was the only female working in the city. And that was not uncommon. So the number of female officers Um, that were active back then that you would be pooling from now of retired is lower than if you started now pulling. So there is more females now than there ever has been. How how has the paradigm shifted 
in terms of when you started being a, you know, a, a female police officer and going into homicide and cold cases to up until when you retired? Oh, it's, it has definitely shifted. Um, like I said, it's, it's as simple as when I was working the street to um, if anybody had a female prisoner, we had to go and, and search them. We, you know, they weren't allowed to search them. They weren't allowed to touch them. That, and I'm like, so I was like flying all over the city if they ever arrested anybody as a female, just had them down before putting them in the cruiser and stuff. So, again, that's when I always knew that, am I the only female working in the city tonight? And they're like, yeah. And um, so has have we increased? Oh, absolutely. Have we increased the promotions and, and the women going up through the ranks? Yes, absolutely. Even we're seeing women cheat. So it's, de- I mean, women have definitely put a stamp on law enforcement and has, um, it, they've also put a stamp on the specialized units as well as um, the promotion aspect of it, that they're going to, it took a very, very long time. Our, most of our women, I think when I first came on, if, if a female person became pregnant, they had no policies or anything in regards to that. Like, it was like, oh no, we have a, a pregnant female. Um, so they had no policies in regards to that. So we had a fight for that through the union for quite a while. Um, so there's a lot of aspects as far as promotions. A lot of females have had a fight for their roles within the police department. And, but it's, that's gotten a lot better. But over the years, I've watched the fight. Hey, everyone. Kelly McClear here. Do the holidays have you stressed out, wound up, or just plain worn out? If you're looking for some help with that, CBDX just might have you covered. Now, you've all heard of regular CBD, right? Well, CBDX has just kicked things up a notch with their line of products that include Delta 8 THC. It's a federally legal form of THC that you will absolutely feel. Take it from me because I use it. So if you live in a state where cannabis is not legal, CBDX may be perfect for you. And the cool part is, is you can get it in the form of vape cartridges, gummies, and concentrates. And because they ship it right to your house, there's no need for sketchy handoffs or dealing with a dispensary. Now, I have to tell you, though, that the CBDX products will show up as THC on a drug test and never drive or operate heavy machinery when using the CBDX products. Because like I said, unlike typical CBD products, you will feel CBDX. So if you want to give it a try, go to CBDX.com. That's four letters, C-B-D-X, and use the code KILLER for 20% off and a free gift. And over the years, you have been at the helm of some of Dayton, Ohio's uh, most notable cases. Mm. Uh, LaVon Hooper, Nikki McCown, Paula Payne. Um, what I don't want to ask you which one stands out to you the most, but if you had to look back at your career, whether it be the one that spoke to you the most, the one that hits you the hardest, the one that left the longest lasting impression, which one would that be? Or which ones would those be? You know, and in, in, in the specific ones, I, I, I will say that over the years, um, there are cases that you prosecute and um, and that you prosecute and they go to prison and stuff. And, and, and that's great. And, and we are able to 
give these families whatever closure that they need um, and, and to make sure that that suspect is, um, has consequences for their behavior. I think what some of the difficult ones are, the ones that we know who did it, but that we aren't able to prosecute for a number of reasons. Um, I think those are the ones that are the most frustrating is that we know these people are, are walking the streets or they've gone out and killed somebody else since they killed the investigation that I did. So now I'm working on a second case that this person has done because they didn't prosecute the first case, that even though we knew that they did it. Those are the hardest. Literally watching a suspect be out on the street and being in you know, everyday neighborhood and doing everyday things, knowing that they killed somebody and killed some of our most vulnerable victims, yet they're still walking around. Um, that's very frustrating and that's, and those are hard. So that's kind of makes them memorable, but you've also got the cases where some people come in and they have a conscious. After sometimes 30 years, they will walk through the door and say, admit to a homicide that they committed. And you just kind of sit there and, and it's a very surreal moment to listen to that confession. Uh, one being uh, confessed killing her father very, very, very brutally um, and came from a very large family of people. And this woman has lived her whole life and she just didn't want to live it any further without coming clean. Um, she lived a very religious life after this. And, um, and a, another person, same thing, that if we, he would not have come in and confessed, we would have never recovered her body and would have never known that she was deceased. So people don't really hear a lot about those cases because it doesn't really get a lot of media attention because they come in and they confess. They usually don't even go to a grand jury and they just plea and then they just go to jail and do their time. So a lot of media, you don't get a lot of media coverage. So a lot of people don't even realize the number of things that we do. And then the cases that we work and work and work and that's never prosecuted for whatever reason, and the prosecutor's office won't take the charges, we've done almost two, three, four years worth of work and the case still sits there. And nobody knows okay. it, this work. Well, I have, I've always wanted to ask this question um, because, you know, covering working on Crime Watch Daily, we would, uh, you know, actually seek out these accused killers walking free. And, you know, we, as an amateur and just a journalist, I, you know, sometimes I'm thinking, well, it seems like there's enough evidence, but it comes down to circumstantial and it comes down to the district attorney, which some would say, you know, in talking to a lot of my friends on both sides, defense, prosecution and detectives that, um, prosecutors won't move forward unless it's a guaranteed win. And I, I don't want to believe that, but what, what is that battle? What's the, what is that like as a detective dealing with the DA's office when you're like, we have enough and they're telling you we don't, you know, to walk us through that struggle, how often, and is it because it's not a guaranteed win? What it, what is it? You know, you, you, you're dead on in what you said. I mean, that is that is our struggle. Not everybody has that struggle, but I will say we've we've had that struggle, and there has been cases that have not been in. The, now there are some cases that I took, and and I said, you know, that when they say, well, what about this, this, and this, and or you need to go do this, this, and I was, okay, they used to be part of our team, 
and they used to come to our team meetings and stuff. So you could get a different perspective. And they often would say, okay, well, I understand that now. Because I'd say, come out with us. You know, get involved. They used to go to the crime scenes. But, I mean, maybe there's too many murders now for that. But, yeah, you're right. Now, get involved. And they'd say, well, then we become a witness. And I'm like, well, I disagree with that. But that was always kind of one of the excuses that might come up is then we become witnesses and so on and so forth. But the more people that got passionately involved, same with the with the lab technicians, we started, we used to go, we would just send the evidence to them, you know, to collect DNA. And then, and then, which was one of the questions that we started getting into earlier, which I can get into after I answer this question. But um, the more passionate these people were to get, that were passionately involved in the case from the beginning, we found to get better results from them. So there was a couple of cases that we included them from the beginning and that I, and that we didn't have enough. Was that frustrating? Yes. Did they work with us? Yes. Do I think they could have done a little bit more? Yes. Do I think they could have brought some of these witnesses into grand jury? And do I think they would have testified differently at the grand jury? Yes. And did they refuse to do that? Yes. So I think that there is a ways or there are several ways around thinking outside the box that a lot of prosecutors, there are some that will, a lot of prosecutors don't want to think outside the box. Well, if you're investigating cold cases, that's what you're doing 24-7 is thinking outside the box. So every day I work thinking outside the box. Nothing was ever inside the box. It, everything was outside. So I would say, but we could do this, this, and this. And being in there for 16 years, I've, I gained a lot of knowledge. You also gain a lot of expertise. You gain a lot of people that you know, um, people in the field, people at the prosecutor's office, people at the lab, and so on, and p- other people with the expertise that you can go to and say, okay, well, you look at this case, and, and so on and so forth. But as far as it's so frustrating, there was one case in particular that it was two, two women were killed. And as far as I'm concerned, it was, it was a great case. Was there a couple things that went wrong during grand jury? Yes. Did it, should it have killed the case? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And it, they killed the case at grand jury. I was appalled. We had to meet with the families and the prosecutors wants us to go in and be a, a team. Well, I won't accept as a team if you now just went against me and, you know, I'm telling you that we have enough for evidence and you just go in there to a grand jury. Now, a lot of detectives will tell you that you can sell a, bo- uh, you can sell a bologna sandwich at, at a grand jury or prosecute a bologna sandwich at a grand jury. And um, that's not necessarily wrong. And um, so a lot of times, if you don't get it indicted at grand jury, it's because of the way the prosecutor might be presenting the case. Not in all cases, but in some cases. And, and people that are in that jury room will tell you that. They'll, I have run into people that were on grand juries afterwards that have told me that, that have made comments about that. But um, so this particular suspect, within a month of getting out free on this double homicide, went over to another state, killed somebody else. They arrested him, and ultimately he killed himself while he was in prison for a homicide over in Indiana, and we were still working to prosecute him again back on my double homicides. The state of Indiana was working with me to continue to prosecute him on my cases, and he ultimately killed himself. So because he didn't go to prison for my double homicide, two more people died, being himself and another individual. That's difficult. That's difficult. 
So they do have all the power. They do. Oh, absolutely. And I, and that's where a lot of people come back and think it's us. You know, they think we have the power. And, and I think that's part of what I try to educate people on, on, on doing some of the things that we do is they need to understand that there is a process. We're only a part of that process. That process leaves our hands and we don't have a lot of control over it once it leaves our hands. Well, the problem and, also too, is you're the ones dealing with the victim's family. And so, you know, they're looking at you like do something and you're yeah. looking at them like I, I, I've, I've done it. It's not me, you know, it's at the next right. level and that's gotta be tough. And you're the one fielding oh. those calls. They aren't. Oh, you're absolutely hundred percent right. And that's why they want us to go in there with a game face to meet the family after an indictment doesn't come out or whatever might happen. And I had a few situations like that and act like we're a team and that, you know, like we're sitting up here together and we're like, I'm going to agree with them. And I, and and they want us to play nice. Well, that has not always gone well. And I, I won't do that. And um, does that, has that come back and nipped me at times and, and, and they get angry because they want us to be a, 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 you know, a front, like a, a team. Yeah, but I, I won't I won't say that I'm involved or I won't take responsibility for something that's not my responsibility. I won't do it. There's no reason for me to do that. You know, I I have by the time that I'm done working a case, I not only have a lot of time vested in this, but I have family members who have now become people who I have talked to every day, witnesses that I have talked to every day, witnesses that I might've had to go to Wisconsin to pick up or New Jersey to pick up. And that, so these are people that become a part of your every day because you are, you are investigating this case for a long time. And, um, and this family gets to know you and they trust you. And then it's like, well, I'm not going to uh, just walk away from that trust because now they think, you know, it didn't get prosecuted. No, I did. I want you them to know I did everything humanly possible. Do I agree with the outcome of the grand jury? No, I do not. But is there anything I can do about it? No, there is not. And I can explain to them the law and that's all I can do. Well, and let's and talk about when- that. Let, let's talk about your relationship with the victim's families. You know, you, especially when it comes to cold cases, you become so close to those families and their yes. loved ones. And, you know, they, they become almost like family. But how, how, how hard is it to remember to keep separating yourself and to not get too close? Or does that just inevitably happen and there's no way around it? Well, this is what I can say, Cal. So when you do this job for 16 years, which is how long I did that. And you become the person that this family calls, whether it be a mother, wife, sister, brother, or a child, you're the person that they call when it's their birthday or it's the holidays or they're sad just to say, do you have any updates is, you know, or I have found this out or I saw this on Facebook and you have met them and you hear from them. And you know, all you have to do is go back to your mind and say, oh, it's got to be their birthday or it's got to be the, the anniversary of their death. That I gave them a place to come at their time of comfort. And if I didn't solve it, that was okay. 
what they wanted to know is to make sure that their loved one has not been forgotten and that that case file is not hidden in a file somewhere getting dust on it. That there is somebody at the other end of this phone who is going to hear me, who's going to listen to me and who's going to talk to me. So yes, you get to know these people. And when I retired, that was difficult. That was difficult for these families on the other end. At that time, I didn't know who was going to take over and they didn't know what they were going to do and stuff. But difficult? Yeah, very difficult. There were some families who really struggled. And I mean, I got a lot of nice letters and stuff that came in thanking me for all of the work, whether whether I prosecuted the suspect or even had a suspect in the cases. That wasn't as important as the fact that I gave them respect and that I made sure that their loved ones were not forgotten. And I did everything that I could for the case, whether it was solving it or not. So, Patty, with these cold cases and all the advancements in technology and DNA, how, again, are you seeing the investigation of cold cases shifting? So when I first went over to um, cold case, they had DNA and it had just started. And the one thing that had happened in our local crime lab is they had already submitted some of the evidence that they had in the refrigerator, in their freezer and stuff. So we had some hits, but those were all sexual assaults. None of those were homicides. So at that point, we were specializing more in homicides. But one of the first things that we did is we opened up the homicides of females because we found that a lot of times there would be more evidence of DNA on the female victims, whether it be underneath their fingernails or actually sexual assaults that were occurring. So we would submit evidence in a case. It would be a year often before we got those results back. So we would submit and we would start working cases, waiting for evidence to come, wait for some if they got any results back from the DNA. And we might work it for quite some time or submit it and then just keep opening cases and keep submitting evidence. And then once we got the DNA reports back, then we would go back to that case file. And if we got DNA evidence, then we would open the case up. If we didn't, we might not necessarily open up that case. But we had a time frame in the 90s where we had a lot of prostitutes that were killed. We thought that it was the same suspect and they were looking at as a, as a serial killer. Only to come find out as we started submitting this DNA and stuff, it wasn't coming back to the same people. But then we also had to realize, okay, that this was a prostitute, that the suspect of the DNA that we're getting may not be the killer. So that was some real big challenges that we had at the very beginning was the time frame that it was taking. So then it would kind of get less and less um, time. And, and so as time progressed, we would it would not take as long. We could put things in as a priority and stuff. And then we added, then they added touch DNA. So then we would say, okay, let's go back to some of these cases where we know they went into the pockets. And so we actually took evidence, uh, took evidence that we originally didn't take and resubmitted it from the same case that maybe we'd submitted five years prior. So as, as progression has happened, we've resubmitted a lot of the evidence. And it's kind of funny though, there are times that the lab technician will call us and say, if we do this test, that takes up all of the DNA or that takes up all of the evidence and, you know, and then it's all done. And we have to make a decision at that point. Okay, do we want that to happen? 
or are we looking that there might be something in the future? You know, is this really a for sure thing that looks like that this is something we really need to do, or should we might save this piece of evidence for something down the road? Wait, um, why why would my, it be done? Why is it one or the other? Is it because the deterioration of it? Well, because there might only be enough of a sample to get just enough to do that type of testing so that the report will say that they used all of the sample to um, make that particular test. So they took whatever whatever they had. So if it was just like um, like a piece of you know, some scrapings underneath the fingernail and they um, they had to use up whatever they had in order to get a profile. And, and there were times that we had to make that decision. They didn't always use it all, but sometimes there was very minute amount and then they would have they would use it all. But it would say in the report that they had to use it all up in order to get that submission and get um, get the results. And sometimes it gets results and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, so you have to sit down. You have to know there are going to be additional things that will come later. It's just like that's why we do not give any evidence back to the families. That's frustrating to the families because they would like to have something back from their loved ones. So there are times that I go through evidence and I there are a few things that I've given back, but it's often it's it's not it's not very often just because we don't know what technology is going to do up the road. Number one. And number two is we don't know what some of these witnesses might tell us that we need that um, evidence in order to prove what the witness is saying. So that's why we keep evidence forever is we're just waiting. I mean, who would have known that DNA and all these things were going to happen? I mean, when I, when I first started, everything was blood, you know, everything went by AB or B positive and that, and that, and that's what all the reports that I pulled were all blood reports. And then we started into the DNA and then we started into the touch DNA. And then we've added into the, uh, you know, all kinds of different things from that point on. It's just when, you know, first started, you had to have like 13 alleles, which is part of a DNA profile. Now you have to have, you have, can have less and you can have what they call mitochondria, which is maternal. So there's so many different things that have changed over the time of me starting to now, now everything's getting into a lot of the gene pool. So that's, that's the big thing that they're looking into now is that, okay, so now you've got DNA that matches this person and DNA, we've collected DNA from another person. Well, we know that they're related somehow. And then you start figuring out how are they related and, you know, through a father, mother, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of gene testing that's gonna, that's starting to occur now. Patty, I have to ask, after you retired, um, with, with a couple of your cases not having any answers uh, or any resolve, do you almost feel like one of those family members now that you're on the other side of it? Um, you know, it's kind of funny. You, you just, um, I've gotten calls from the detectives, um, that may work the case now or have gotten phone calls and stuff. And they're very clear in saying, you know, the family called in and asked for me and stuff. And that's how they referred to me. She became like family. And sometimes you, you, you want, you want that suspect as bad as they want that suspect. And I don't know if it's necessarily just the fact because you become close to the, you, you become, you get to know the victim. 
in a lot of these cases. So not only do you get to know the family, but you really get to know the victim through the family, through the evidence, through the witnesses, through all the people that call you. And it's amazing what you find out about a lot of these victims. Um, so I think it's like a, it's a pool of things. It's a plethora of things of how you become passionate in the case that you're investigating. And I think that that's the key to so much of a good investigation is the more passionate you are in it, but not getting personally involved in it. But there's nothing wrong with being passionate for that case because you've gotten to know the family, you've gotten to know the victim, and you know there's no reason why this person should be dead, no reason why anybody should be killed. But it just takes a little bit more of the, um, the passion to want to solve this case when you get to know that family and when you get to know that victim. So yeah, you do. Because what we have to remember is that we all use this word closure. And some of the things that we have to remember is this is not about me. Solving this case is not about me. I am the mediator person between the family and the victim often and the, and, and the, and, and the suspect. And what happens is I cannot assume what is going to give this family closure. The prosecutor's office should not assume what's going to give this family closure. It's up to you. If you're not being an arrogant, selfish detective that's just wanting to go and solve this crime, talk to the family. What, what do you want? What would you like to see happen to the person that did this? How do you feel about this? You tell me. And often it's not what we think. It's not what we think. Always need to ask that question. It's very well said and, and very, very true. Um, I have to ask also, uh, with all of these podcasts and citizen detectives uh, working their own cases, trying to you know pick up cold cases and missing person cases, how do you feel about all of that? So here, I have spoken to a lot of citizens who have called me in regards to cases. There are sometimes you have to um, figure out, okay, what is, you're the detective. Okay, so you have to figure out what is their take on this? What is their purpose? You have to make sure that this isn't something related to a witness, somebody related to the suspect. that's not just trying to get more information. So you have to, you have to first of all realize what is your, you know, what is your reason for this? Why are you calling me and why are you trying to get more information and why are you investigating this case? That's a very, very important thing for you, for us to know. Even when the journalists call us and want a copy of a case file, I will always say, what, tell me what you're looking for. What do you want? Like, what, what is your end, end means here? What, what are you trying to do? You know, well, we're trying to solve it. And, and, if you don't ask that question, half the time, you're not going to be able to give them what they want. And most of the time, you can give them what they want if you really know what they want. But most people don't ask, what are you really looking for? They'll just say, oh, okay. They'll give them the case file, but the case file, most of the stuff is redacted, so they don't really get anything. But the reality is, you wouldn't have even had to go through all of that because I could have told you this. But that's one side of it. The other side of it is when you talk to somebody who just says, okay, I got on the Ohio state, the state of Ohio website, which all of our cold cases and stuff are, um, when we downloaded them all in Dayton, they went and I worked with the, with the attorney general's office and they took our files and, and put them on the states. 
So they'll call us and somebody will say, well, I saw that this person was missing at the same time a person was out of Indiana or Illinois. You know, we think that there might be a link. And I said, okay, what makes you think that there's a link? And then they'll start talking. Now, I can I can say to them, honestly, it's not a link. I can't tell you why it's not. But from the information you've given me, I can tell you you're you're not barking up the right, wrong, right tree. And then there's times I'm like, how did you get that information? Hey, you want to come and work with me? Hey, I'm going to call you back because, yeah, that is good information. And I'm not quite sure how you got it. And I would be real interested to know how you found that out because you shouldn't have that information and you shouldn't know that information. And then I take it a step further at times and say, hey, keep going because you are doing things I can't do without a search warrant that I can't do because I am working for law enforcement and I am working under the letter of the law that I have to file, follow certain um, protocols, certain laws, you know, the warrants and the whole bit. And other people, citizens don't have to. So, and journalists don't have to. You know, some journalists do, some journalists don't. It doesn't, you know, it just kind of depends on the circumstances. So, no problem with them. I, you just have to screen those calls to find out what is the bottom line? What is the interest to these people? Why are they doing it? You know, is there um, people who go too far and people that should not be doing it? Yeah. And, but it's up to you to screen out those people. It's not up to you to ignore them. You need to field these calls. You need to talk to these people, but you definitely need to screen them because you need to find out what their purpose is, what their underlying reason for doing it is. That is such a great answer and a really good outlook and, you know, thorough, thorough layered response, you know, that's, that's yeah. great. We, we appreciate your candor in answering questions that I've always wanted to ask, you know, a detective. So I, I truly appreciate all of your insight and your wisdom. No problem. I um no problem. I uh, have no problem. Like I said, I, when you said, you know, you, you can speak, you don't have to worry about that with me. I'll tell you, you know, I, I did it for a long time. Um, loved my job, loved every part of it. And, um, and there's positives, there's pros, there's cons to, to it all. And there's a lot of people that will leave the homicide unit um, because of the frustration of not solving crimes and because of the frustration of working with the prosecutor's office and not getting the what they need often. And that, to me, was always just when I, when I would watch these very, very good detectives leave because of that. That's heartbreaking. But they just have had, they had had enough and they just couldn't do it anymore. And it was just too stressful to do this much work, be this involved in a case for other people just to say, mm, nope, sorry, not going to take it today. You know, here, we're going to give you a to-do list to go out and do some more stuff. Well, I already had a to-do list and I got them all done. Well, now we're just blowing you off and you know, hopefully you'll get sick and tired of it. And I will open up these cases and I will sometimes look at these to-do lists and I can literally see where the detective did a check mark, check mark, check mark, and they just couldn't do anymore. Some of it was just such ridiculousness of what they were asking us to do, or almost impossible, and they did that intentionally. And that's where the frustration would come in these detectives, and they'd say that's how a lot of these cases were closed. Not because they didn't have a suspect, because they couldn't get the prosecutor's office to prosecute it. Well, Patty, we thank you for all of your years of service with the Dayton Ohio Police Department, and we wish you nothing but the 
best of fun and success in retirement. Thanks for having me. Thanks everyone for listening. Follow Killer Jeans on Facebook and on Instagram. It's at Killer Jeans, the podcast. Also, be sure to like and subscribe to Killer Jeans on Podcast One, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, Killer Jeans listeners. You know what makes for a great gift any time of the year and for anyone? It's Killer Jeans branded merchandise. We've got what you need to show off your Killer Jeans. Everybody has Killer Jeans, so why not flaunt yours? You can do it with hoodies, socks, mugs, hats, and even wine glasses with our Killer logo. So for you or that true crime lover in your life, Visit our collection today at shop.podcastone.com. Hi, I'm Caitlin Van Maul, host of I Survived. If you enjoy I Survived, we are excited to announce a new launch. Starting November 15th, we'll be reposting our classic episodes from season one of I Survived. We hope to reach a whole new audience with these important stories of survival. And for those of you who have been with us since the beginning, we think these powerful episodes warrant another listen. Starting November 15th, look out for those episodes and more news from I Survived. 